So, just how happy are you? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're doing something a little different today on Travel with Rick Steves. As a foreign correspondent for NPR, Eric Weiner needed a break from reporting on war-torn countries, natural disasters, and miserable people. So, this self-described grump turned the tables to ask what places on Earth are the happiest and why. To write his book, The Geography of Bliss, Eric spent months on a quest to find the happiest country in the world, visiting places as diverse as Switzerland, Qatar, and Thailand. From India to Iceland, from Bhutan to Britain, and right here in the good old USA, he examines what makes people content with the country they call home. Today, Eric will tell us which places are the happiest and which are the least happy. Come along as Eric Weiner takes us to the happiest places on Earth. And, by the way, we're happy to be with you for the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking bliss. I'm joined by Eric Weiner, who's written a book called The Geography of Bliss, One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Eric Weiner has been a foreign correspondent for over a decade with NPR. He's reported from more than 30 different countries. Now he's based in Washington, D.C., and he recently took a year to basically go out and explore the world and study what makes some countries happy and what makes some countries less happy. Eric, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Rick. Good. Just give us a little background on this. You set out for a year, visited how many countries? What was your agenda? Well, I visited uh, 10 countries, if you include the U.S., and my agenda was a happiness agenda. As you said, it was my objective as a former foreign correspondent for NPR to sort of take that whole idea of what I had done for so many years, which was essentially travel to the least happy countries in the world, and turn it on its head Mm. and venture out in search of either the happiest countries, as we can measure it, or places that I felt said something about the art of happiness, places that maybe had some lessons for us. And, you know, I did travel as well to the least happy country in the world, Moldova, Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind, that idea that there might be some object lessons even from the least happy country in the world about what makes for a happy place. And there is sort of an irony from a correspondent's point of view. You went to places that a lot of them are happy, and because of their general contentment, they're not in the news that much, so they kind of go under the radar. Well, I mean, if you think about it, we pick up our newspaper, we turn on the radio or the TV, and we're not hearing about the happy countries, right? We're not hearing about, you know, everything went well in Iceland (laughs) today, and the people were content. Details at 11. No, (laughs) we don't hear that. We hear uh, when things go horribly wrong, when people die, when there's disease and natural disasters. And look, I've been a journalist all my career. I understand that's what journalists do and especially foreign correspondents. You know, what is the job of a foreign correspondent? I mean, let's sort of take a look at this. You you get on an airplane and you travel to the least happy countries in the world, and once you're in these unhappy countries, you then seek out the least happy people there, refugees, victims of famine, disease, and then you hang out with them for long periods of time. And this is rewarding work, but kind of a bummer, too. Well, then this is actually news. You're balancing out the coverage that people get, and we're taking a look at countries that have got it right, I suppose you could say. Yeah, who have it right, who are, you know, taking this very American pursuit, the pursuit of happiness, and and doing it in their own way. And it, it is a travelogue of sorts, but it's a travelogue of ideas. And what I've tried to do is take this abstract idea of happiness and make it concrete and and treat the world like a laboratory of ideas, which is is very different from, I think, what most foreign correspondents do. Wow. I'm talking with Eric Weiner. He's written a book called The Geography of Bliss, One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Now, i got to ask, you point out the fact that you are by nature a grump. Uh, Wasn't your Mm -hmm. your favorite character Eeyore or something like this? Uh, Does that enable you to recognize bliss better because you are coming from such a low perspective? It's a good question. You know, some people, when they hear about the book and that I'm a grump, they're like, well, you know, what do you as a grump know about happiness? Uh, To which I say, what does a a hungry person know about food? Um, Actually, quite a lot um, in the sense that you have a hunger for it. I am a a grump or probably more of a malcontent might be a better word, but we thought that had too many syllables. So And it sounded vaguely French. So you're tuned into happiness then. Yeah, I am. I'm a seeker. I'm seeking it out. And I think 
I mean, to be honest, I think a happy person looking for the happiest places in the world would be a bit nauseating. I think a grump looking for the happiest places is uh, a bit of a more interesting intellectual exercise. And also, I think it, 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 this was not, you know, a contrived sort of adventure. This was genuine. I am not particularly happy despite career success I've enjoyed. I think that does make a lot of sense. Now, uh, without, you know, the obvious question, well, what's the most happy country and why? But I, th- I think that's too simple because there's different kinds of happiness. And I noticed of the right. 10 countries you visited, each one has a fascinating subtitle. Eric, let me just try this if you don't mind, and then we'll go through them in a quick review, and then we can delve deeper. But you say the Netherlands, happiness is a number. The reason I say that is because I went to the Netherlands with one specific idea in mind, and that was to visit a place called the World Database of Happiness. And it's a real place. It's run by a nice Dutch professor named Ruth Wienhoven, and he has compiled in one place in Rotterdam the collective wisdom or at least knowledge about what makes us happy, what does not, and where we are happy and where we are not. And he's really on the leading edge of what's what's referred to variously as the science of happiness or positive psychology. Mm. And this is basically social scientists taking a very serious approach to the study of happiness. And that's where I started my journey. Now, I mean, it turns out there is also much to be said about Dutch happiness, and that relates to tolerance and uh, sort of lax attitude towards what we would consider vices such as drugs and prostitution. Yeah. And uh, when I talk to Dutch people who are unhappy, they say they live in a jukebox. It's so well organized. So there is that hmm. sort of organizational intent on being happy that can maybe be too organized. You say in Switzerland, happiness is boredom. Yes, because the Swiss are boring or appear to be boring from the outside. I don't know if they're actually bored themselves, but it, it is this kind of life that it's a very attenuated existence, and everything works in Switzerland, as you know. It mm. functions very well. The trains really do run on time. And there is what the philosopher Schopenhauer called, as, he defined happiness as the absence of, of suffering, the absence of misery. And the Swiss have that. They appear boring, but in fact, they're very content. They are among the happiest nations in the world. And as I said, everything works well, but there are other reasons for Swiss happiness. They vote very often, seven or eight times a year in referenda. Um, they have a real connection to nature and the land. And they eat a lot of chocolate. Let's not forget that. Their chocolate contains chemicals which scientists believe make us happy. Make you happy. On the other hand, I yeah. was in Lausanne, Eric, and they've got a bridge mm-hmm. where at Christmas time when people tend to be depressed, there's actually people there with coffee who are volunteers that stop people from jumping off to commit suicide. So there is this sort of... This is, this is one of the contradictions that I stumbled across in my research is that some of the happiest places in the world, like Switzerland, also have the highest suicide rates. Wow. And people say, yeah, they say, wow. They say, <laughs> wow. how can that be? Well, And I, I spent some time delving into this apparent contradiction. And it's not as big of a contradiction as it seems. I mean, first of all, the suicide rates are still fairly low so that if a psychologist is surveying a thousand people, the chances of coming across someone suicidal are fairly low. Also, the, the things that that make us happy are not the same things that keep us from killing ourselves. And let me explain that a bit. Um, You might have a Roman Catholic country, say in Latin America, where there's a real strict religious prohibition against suicide. So people don't commit suicide by and large, Mm -hmm. but that's not going to make you happy. That's just going to prevent you from killing yourself. And so in Switzerland, there's not this prohibition against suicide. And in fact, the euthanasia laws are fairly liberal. People come to Switzerland to die, in fact, because uh, Mm. if they're suffering from terminal illnesses. So suicide doesn't have the... It's not necessarily this mark of a miserable society. No, it's not. Um, It just, it says something about it. Um, Bhutan, happiness is a policy. A policy known as gross national happiness. That is the policy of the government of Bhutan. And how could I not go to a Bhutan (laughs) when when (laughs) it has a policy like that? Yeah, and it, it is a serious policy that um, the former king, King Wangchuk, first articulated in the 1970s, and it sort of gathered steam in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it's still a work in progress. It doesn't mean that the Bhutanese are all happy because they have a policy of gross national happiness. But what it does mean is that here's a country, unlike any other country in the world, as you know, very isolated in the Himalayas, but a country that says, you know, we're not going to pursue our national well-being. We're not going to gauge how we're doing strictly by gross national product, you know, the economic measures that we use in this country to determine how we're doing. We're going to come up with something new, gross national happiness. Boy, you hit something on the nail there that's very perplexing to me. In the United States, when you say well-being, it's almost preceded with a hyphen 
by material, material well-being. How happy mm. are you? Well, my material well-being is better than it was four years ago, so I'll vote for the same guy or whatever. In a place like Bhutan, where you've got plenty of happy people, uh, you don't have a correlation with affluence and happiness, do you? Not really, and I never really thought of it that way, but you're right. The term well-being is, is often preceded by the term material in this country, and I think that's partly because we can measure it. You know, we pay attention to what we can measure, and we can we can measure GDP and the economy and how it's doing in our own personal bank account and how it's doing. We can put a number to it. Happiness, contentment, we can't really put numbers to. That's starting to change. The social scientists believe we can indeed measure happiness by essentially asking people how happy they are. Um, but I think that's kind of a cop-out, really, to say, well, we can't, we, you know, we haven't been able to measure happiness, so let's just measure material well-being. And, and, well, I agree. And, and if you're a politician in a country with no affluence, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. like Bhutan, maybe it's a pragmatic move to promote happiness as something that's not material. Well, this, this is the criticism that Bhutan gets in, in other countries, even... Uh, President Sarkozy in France was talking about adopting something similar. And in Great Britain, they're talking about similar measures. This is, this is being taken fairly seriously. Sarkozy said he's going to hire two uh, Nobel Prize winners in economics to try to come up with something to supplement, not replace, but supplement GDP. But wouldn't that be subversive in a capitalistic sort of high-driven economy to find ways to be happy without mm, preceding it with material well-being? Well, they may not be mutually exclusive, Rick. You may find that as you get wealthier, you get happier. And in fact, Mm -hmm. there's some evidence that for the really poorest countries in the world, the best way to make them happy is to give them more money. I mean, up to a certain level, the rise, if you can picture a chart, you know, going up, the, Mm -hmm. the rise in happiness and the rise in income go in tandem. But what happens is it levels off. Basically levels off, and then it actually at some point, and then it arcs down. The the wealthiest part of the world, by a lot of measures, Scandinavia, recently had a movement called the Future in Our Hands, based on surveys that showed that people were content materially, and they didn't want more. They wanted to find more meaning in their lives, and it really was pushing mm. for that policy of happiness. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about bliss with Eric Weiner. Eric has written a book called The Geography of Bliss: One Grump Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Let us know what you found when searching for Paradise on Earth. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Or you can continue our discussion in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Donald White. I'm a Scotsman, but I live in northern Italy. I'm traveling with Rick Steves and having a blast. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Eric Weiner. 
and Eric Weiner. That's a good name for a book called uh, Geography of Bliss, <laughs> One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Eric, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. We're talking about Eric Weiner's adventure. He spent a year traveling around the world, visiting various countries, some happy, some not happy. Eric, did you know when you chose these 10 countries that, did you have a hunch that you're going to certain places because they're famous for being happy and then a couple of countries for famous for being unhappy? Well, I was I was looking for a mix of countries. I was looking for places that were unexpectedly happy. I mean, I could have just sort of headed out to Tahiti and Fiji and sort of our traditional image of what a happy place is, of what paradise is. But it turns out that those are not the happiest places statistically. Um, so I chose some countries like Iceland and Switzerland, which score very high on the happiness scale. But then I went to places like India, which don't score that high in the happiness spectrum, but are places that Westerners, as you know, uh, travel to quite frequently looking for their own personal bliss. Now, and that is really something I want to be sure to get in. You, you say... India. Happiness is a contradiction. That's your subtitle. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little more about your experience in India. I mean, first of all, I should say that I lived in India for two years as a correspondent for National Public Radio in the, in the mid-1990s, and I go back regularly. And as you probably know, India is one of those places you either love or you hate. And if you love it, uh, you go frequently, and you might hate it while you're there. But it's just it's one of those places that gets under your skin, and that's the way it's always been. For Let me, me just inject well before you carry yeah. on with that. Just uh, it's my favorite country, and even though my my mark is Europe, there's something about India. And for two years in a row, Eric, I had tickets to India, and I found excuses not to go there because I was afraid of being mired in all that poverty. And I got over there, and the poverty was there, but I found a strange joy, and I tried to understand mm -hmm. it, and it was almost like there's a bulk joy of a billion people where individually maybe not a lot of material wealth or whatever, but all together it was a celebration of life. There's something magical and intoxicating about India, and I can't put my there finger is. on it quite. Yeah, I mean, they say that if you want to see all of humanity at its best and its worst, just stand on any Indian street corner and turn around 360 degrees, and you will see it all. I mean, you will see you know, somebody helping someone, somebody robbing someone, terrible poverty, and amazing wealth, sort of all right there. I mean, it is it is in your face. I call it happiness is a contradiction because I think Indians are able to hold in their head two contradictory thoughts at the same time, and this is crucial, without, without their head exploding. Um, we in the West, it's either A or B, X or Y, up or down. It, it, it can't be both at the same time. I'll give you an example. I have an Indian friend named Manju, and she's a very level-headed attorney, sort of proper and, I would say, very rational. But she is a follower of a guru, uh, well, he's dead now, named Osho, or he was known as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, uh, who has an ashram in Maharashtra state. And anyway, he was famous for basically having 94 Rolls Royces when he was in Oregon in, I think, the 1980s. And I said to Manju, I said, you know, how can you read his books and listen to his tapes? I mean, the man... I was a hypocrite, I thought. He had 94 Rolls Royces and preached an austere lifestyle. And she just looked at me and said, you know, that's okay. I just take the good and leave the bad. And I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. Because as an American, we get the sniff of hypocrisy and we just throw it all out. And in India, they are able to take the good and leave the bad. Well, their world is swimming in good and bad. Right. Have you ever thought much about a caste system? It's very easy for us um, Westerners to condemn a country that has a caste system where some people are born into an untouchable class or whatever. Uh, but in some ways, it might there might be some logic to it. Have you, have you given that much thought? I'm not about to defend the caste system. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi fought his life against it and basically lost. It persists in many parts of India, although it's diminishing. Um, and I'll be clear, I don't want to glorify India. It has problems, and I think the caste system is one of those problems. But there is a fatalistic view towards life there, which I think can be healthy at times. I'll give you an example. There's a psychologist named Robert Biswas uh, Diener, uh, in Oregon, I believe. Anyway, he did some studies comparing homeless people in Calcutta and homeless people in Fresno, California. And he found out that the homeless in Calcutta were much happier than the homeless in Fresno, even though the homeless in, in California had better access to health care and were physically better off. And the question is why? And one thing had to do with family and connections. The homeless people in Calcutta had people hmm. around them. But also this fatalism. If you're homeless... In India, you know, it's because of something that happened in a previous lifetime or you were fated to be at this level. If you're homeless or down and out in the U.S., it's seen as a character flaw. 
it's because you're a failure. And you don't have that same opprobrium in uh, in India. In India also, there's a notion that time is not money, I think. We're raised to think time is something you save, you waste, you spend, right. you bank. In India, the frustration for a traveler, a lot of times you go there and people are just uh, chewing on time. They're not, they're not spending it. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're chewing on it. They're not swallowing it or spitting it out, just constantly chewing on it. I mean, it, it, things definitely happen on, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, IST <laughs> India. No, wait, help me out here. It's Indian. not India standard. India stretchable time. That's it. That's IST. It. Yeah. India stretchable time, uh, meaning that time can just be elongated. And it's terribly frustrating as a traveler if you're there on business, especially and you're trying to get things done. But look, let's face it, they believe in reincarnation. If you don't get it done <laughs> no in this hurry. lifetime, there's always next lifetime no, or the next hurry. lifetime. You and know, w- yeah. what I like about India is the challenge is all these truths I were raised thinking were self-evident and God-given. They find different truths to be self-evident and God-given, even as simple as music. I mean, it was a humbling thing for me, thinking I knew music and go to India and find it's a, a completely different sort of a system. And yet, for the Western traveler, because English is widely spoken and we can relate to it, we have these entry points to India that maybe in other cultures we would not. So it's both foreign and familiar at the same time. And I think that's one reason Westerners find it so so fascinating. Yeah. We've got some calls and emails. Uh, Larissa from Seattle emailed us, and she asks, how do you know when you've found a happiest place? Uh, how did you measure or compare the various ways of finding happiness and designating uh, which of those were worth mentioning? The way that the people at the World Database of Happiness measure happiness is through a very rigorous method. Uh, they ask people, how happy are you? And I'm totally serious. This is how social scientists measure happiness of a person and then extrapolate that to an entire nation. They ask you overall on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being miserable and 10 being very, very happy, how happy are you with your life? And it turns out that we're pretty good at gauging our own happiness. This can be corroborated by asking other people, well, Rick says he's an 8.5, what do you think? And people might agree. Um so, I mean, that's the sort of technical answer. But that would but be skewed what, by expectations, wouldn't it? I'm an American, so I should be really happy. I'm an untouchable in India, and I have no business being happy. So therefore. This is, you've touched upon uh, a subject of much debate within the happiness academic community, which is, is there a cultural bias? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Japanese, for instance, you know, they have the expression, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. You're not supposed to be too much of anything, including happy. So if you ask the Japanese how happy you are, are they going to suppress those numbers? And... You know, it it is a debate that hasn't really been answered. Um, but look, which country in the world celebrates happiness the most? America, I would say. You know, it's part of our founding document. Yet we are not the happiest country in the world. According to some surveys, we rank as low as 23 behind Malta and, and hmm. Malaysia and Costa Rica. There's a camp of the social scientists who say, you know, that sort of cultural expectation theory doesn't really hold. And one point of evidence they highlight for this is Switzerland, and this has to do with linguistics, really. You know, there are four languages, three main languages in Switzerland, of French, Italian, and German. And when they ask the question, you know, how happy are you in three different languages, they get remarkably hmm. uh, consistent results. There's something about being Swiss that transcends whether you're speaking of Bonaire or Felicidad hmm. or... Or what's, what's the Italian word for happiness? Mm. Um, cappuccino? Yeah, okay. <laughs> vino, um, vino rosso. That's it. So there's some evidence that at least when it comes to linguistics, we're able to transcend that um, when it comes to measuring our happiness, yeah. You mentioned in America, we kind of force happiness. I know it's annoying for my European friends to come over here and they see these smiley faces everywhere. One mm-hmm. guy, I had a friend visit me and he noticed things I never noticed. At the supermarket, the paper bags were printed with a, a smiley face and it said, smile and be a winner. And, and these things just felt so um, you know, unnatural to the Europeans. I was driving uh, on I-95 in southern Florida once, and I came up and saw this big billboard, and it was an ad for a VW Beetle, and there was a picture of the Beetle, and the words in big letters said, dare to be happy. Like, you know, yeah. I'm daring you to be happy. And I thought that's a very American thing, dare to be happy, you know, as if it, you can just will it into existence if we try hard enough. And and the thing about happiness, Rick, is that it's, it is a byproduct of a life lived well, and the more you pursue it directly the more you're likely to be disappointed, which is a, a contradiction, right? Well, yeah. Did, did you think much of Maslow's hierarchy of needs when you uh, did your study? I mean, I thought about it, and I, I think it fits into this idea that the really poor countries in the world, your, your Bangladeshis and Tanzania and countries like that, are not happy because they haven't had their very basic needs. On uh, the other hand, yet. Latin America is extra happy, and they don't have a yes. lot of money. 
Why would that That's be? That's true. That's true. Not as poor as sub-Saharan Africa, but right. there's something that uh, they refer to as the Latino bonus. Like you is, said, it's you know, that it's that that arced curve where right. it's 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 Maslow basically. You need to get food and 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 health and shelter, but after that, you don't need more of that. And maybe the Latin American people get the material essentials, and then they get onto other stuff that's more fulfilling. The main theory and what I subscribe to about the Latino bonus, as they call it, is is family. I mean, they have extremely close family ties. And, you know, if I've learned anything in my travels and researching this book, it's that people matter. Other people matter. Hmm. Um, that, you know, I mean, Sartre said uh, famously that hell is other people. Um, I, I think he's wrong or he was just hanging out with the wrong people. <laughs> other people are vital to our happiness. And I, I was meeting in, in Bhutan with a gentleman named Karma, which is, isn't that wonderful to meet someone named Karma? Um, yeah. Karma Ora was his name. He's someone I'll never forget. And we're sitting down. He's a very educated man with a PhD from Cambridge and, and yet rooted and grounded in Bhutanese and Buddhist culture. And he said to me, he said, Eric, what is this, all this talk I hear in America about personal happiness? Everyone's always talking about their personal happiness. He said to me, there is no such thing as personal happiness. Happiness is 100% relational. And that got me thinking. I thought he was exaggerating to make his point mm-hmm. at the time, but I think he meant exactly what he said. Our happiness is other people. Tie that in with the notion that, what, 40 million Americans relocate every year? Mm-hmm. So we don't have the connections with our extended family or our neighborhood as a culture where people stay put might have. I explore that in my chapter in the U.S., this restlessness, really, that we have as Americans. We are a frontier nation, and although there isn't much frontier left, we still have that frontier spirit. Average American moves 11.7 times a year. That's a lot of moving. But I'm someone who's lived in many places in many countries, and I'm guilty of that. But I don't know if it's a bad thing necessarily. I wonder if it's a plus or a minus. Yeah, what happens when you get to this place? Because I was was thinking about this the other day. Like, okay, you move a lot, but that means you're really a serial home buddy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, every time you go to a place, you're establishing new roots and new ties, and you're actually more practiced at the art of making a home than someone who just stays put and grows where they were planted. I notice in my work, because I spend four months a year traveling, I make a lot of friends, but I have to say goodbye a lot. I'm saying goodbye right. to all these beautiful people and a lot of people who I really like, who I probably realistically won't ever see again. On the other hand, I'm aware that for every time I say goodbye, I've, I've made a friend and I've, I've had to say hello. Uh, it's just you, right. you stir your life up, you carbonate it a bit when you move around. So I guess it's not yeah. clear if it's a plus or a minus to be relocated. Well, that's a good way of putting it. And I, I do think, look, I mean, I'm a traveler you're a traveler. We're talking in a travel program. It is, I think, natural that we believe in the the redemptive qualities of travel. I mean, I like the way Henry Miller put it when he said that uh, your destination is never a place but a new way of seeing things. And I think that's hmm. that's travel at its best. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. That's almost is, the definition of good travel to me. Yeah. Yeah. Is to is to see the world in a different way through the eyes of these people. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Eric Weiner, and we're talking about bliss all around the world. Eric, um, how much does religion enter into the equation? Ah, religion. I mean, you couldn't write a book on happiness without touching upon religion, um, which is what I do. I touch upon it. It's a vast, vast subject. I'll tell you this, that statistically, people who attend religious services, any denomination, any religion, report being happier than people who don't. And the question, though, is why is that? Is it because of some transcendent religious experience they're having, or is it simply the act of getting together with like-minded people? In other words, might these people get the same happiness boost if they, say, joined a bowling league, for instance? Um, Mm -hmm. It's hard to say. Uh, There's some studies that show that people who do believe in God or believe in a supreme being are happier as well. I'll tell you, it's a bit of a conundrum, though, because you have that statistic of this happiness boost from religion, but then look at the happiest countries in the world, you know, places like Denmark and Iceland and Switzerland. They're post-religious, almost. They're not very religious at all. Church attendance is extremely low in these countries. And On the other hand, in Latin America, it's very, very religious. Yeah, and I have a couple of theories on this. One is that you have to believe in something. It can be a religious belief or it can be a belief in, in something else that the Northern Europeans have, a belief in the welfare state, a belief in the cafe lifestyle. I mean, clearly mm. they believe in 
in something. Um, but I had a problem in some Muslim countries I went to, such as Qatar, where it was considered very bad form, actually, uh, I discovered, to talk about happiness, because your happiness is in the hands of God, of Allah. And it was considered presumptuous of me to say, you know, are you happy? Do you want to be happier? When really, they considered it out of their hands. Is there a correlation between sense of humor and religion? You know, I think everybody has a sense of humor. Look, I like to consider myself funny. I, I derive great pleasure from humor. And I think that humor, if it doesn't make you happy, it, it's a great solve for your unhappiness, you know. And and I just, I can't imagine being happy without a sense of humor. Or drugs that are uppers. Doesn't France uh, take a lot of uh, antidepressant drugs? Have you encountered that at all in your in your thoughts on what makes one country happy? America takes a lot of happy drugs. Right, and yet we're not the happiest nation in the world. Um, and people have asked me, you know, sort of related question, which is, you know, can we just basically anesthetize, well, not anesthetize ourselves, but can we inoculate chemically induce, yeah, inoculate ourselves or chemically induce happiness? I'm reminded of this uh, thought experiment that uh, the philosopher Robert Nozick devised, and he said basically, Imagine something called an experience machine. Now, it's perfectly safe. It's been tested. You plug into this experience machine, and you lie down, and you are happy, and you will be happy for the rest of your life. You will experience total bliss. Again, it's safe. It's been tested. FDA approved. Would you want to plug yourself into the experience machine? Would you? Hmm. Give me a few minutes to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. While you're thinking, I will tell you that most people actually say no, right. um, that they would not. And I think that says something about how we define happiness and, and the way we want to achieve our happiness. You know, we want to have some grit and truth and hardship even in our lives, and we want to earn our happiness. We don't want it just chemically induced or through some experience machine. And, you know, you know I can the, relate the, to that, that because yeah. there's a middle American kind of quest for you know, the Pepsi generation, a good Budweiser, a barbecue, a, a football party, a tailgate party, happiness. And a lot of people just seem to strive to have a whole scrapbook of smiley faces to collected before they go to their grave. And it doesn't turn on other people. No. They want and, meaning in their life. Yeah, meaning. I think that's very important. I think a more than a happy life, we want a meaningful life. And happiness can be very much a part of that meaningful life. But I don't know if you can have a happy life without having a meaningful life at the same time. I think it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You want to be self-actualized. You're a big fan of Maslow, aren't I you? I like that. I like that yeah. because we live so heavy on the lower rungs of it in a lot of ways. And I think that's mm. the root of a lot of our unhappiness. Where does coffee fit in Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Do you know? Coffee? Yeah. That's the that pinnacle. It's the, it's the that's summit. It. Okay. <laughs> After self-actualization, you have... Coffee. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Eric Weiner, who's written Geography of Bliss, One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK, or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with Eric Weiner. Eric writes about the international quest for happiness in his book, The Geography of Bliss, One Grump Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Gail is on the line from Albany, Oregon. Hi, Gail. Hi. I'm kind of finding this book fascinating because my two interests of sociology and travel are together in one book. And my question is whether or not Eric found that particular cultures broke down, like women were more happy than men or younger people rather than older. Did you see any kind of divides like that in, in places you visited? Um, it's a good question. I mean, basically, 
the biggest determinant of happiness is culture. In other words, the differences between countries are much greater than the differences within countries. Uh, you know, in other words, we Americans share much more in common when it comes to happiness, whether we're men or women, younger or old, than we do with a Ukrainian, for instance. Um, but I'll, I'll share some findings with you. One is that men and women essentially are about the same when it comes to our happiness levels, but women have a greater range. In other words, women will swing more from you know being higher at one moment and lower at another. Uh, that's one finding. And when it comes to age, turns out the young are happy and the old are happy. And people like myself, I don't know what age you are, but people like myself in the middle are at the bottom of that arc. We're in the trough uh -huh. years of happiness. So uh, <laughs> You found that across cultural borders, that young and old are happier than middle-aged people? Observationally, yes. Although huh. there's some countries like Iceland where people are sort of in this perennial midlife crisis, always changing their <laughs> careers and reinventing themselves that... Maybe they don't experience it as much. I don't have any, you know, data to say absolute certainty that, you know, that holds true across all cultures, but it's my observation. Is there a correlation by some cultures respecting their elders more and taking better care of them as opposed to others? You know, we think about longevity as being a very positive trait, but of course, if you're miserable, I don't, don't know if it is. Um, and, and there are definitely many cultures where the elderly are more respected. But again, the elderly are happy. And, and this kind of came as a bit of a surprise to me. You think, you know, you're 70, 80 years old, you're less happy than when you were 40, 45. Statistically, that's not true. Um, someone 70 years old is happier than someone 40, and, and someone 40 is, is less happy than someone 20. Um, mm. I don't know what it is about, you know, middle age that leads to unhappiness, um, but that's what they find. Gail, have you, have you traveled much, Gail? Um, yes, quite a bit. I'm just, my theory on maybe the middle life people is the burdens of, um, are there for those, whereas those who are young and old perhaps um, are in a different part in life when they don't have as many burdens, yeah. you know. Or maybe those people are able to focus on relationships. Um, ah. You know, when you're young and in college, I mean, think about it. It's uh, You're living cheek by jowl with all these people. You know, and, that goes back and, to your comment uh, on relationships driving that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Gail, thanks for your call. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Again, we're speaking with Eric Weiner, who's written a book called Geography of Bliss, One Grump Search for the Happiest Places in the World. We have Dana on the line in Thousand Oaks, California. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Great. Are you blissful? Uh, while listening to you guys, I became a little more blissful, yeah. That's Made me think hear. about it. What's your thought or comment for Eric? Well, the question was basically, um, if finding bliss through travel... Can you find bliss easier if you have a lot, a bigger budget or a smaller budget? Hmm. In other words, is there happiness to be found in coach class? I mean, you said yourself some of the countries that have the highest level of bliss are kind of expensive countries to live in. Is that true? Ah. Oh, I see what you're saying. So if you were to travel there or some of the things, you know, it involves a little bit maybe possibly more money. Hmm. Now, that is true. Um, take Iceland, for instance, one of the happiest countries in the world, also one of the most expensive. I mean, I was floored by that. In, in Reykjavik, it's $10 for a beer and not a particularly large beer. Within their own economy, I mean, the, the minutes worked for a beer is probably the same as in Prague or something like that. So right. for us to visit, it's different. As you and your listeners know, we have a very weak dollar right now. So hmm, it does raise an interesting question. Is the American tourist and traveler less happy now with the weak dollar when they go overseas? I'm just thinking out loud here, but it could I could argue that it forces you actually to have a more meaningful travel experience because you have to live more like a local. If you can afford to stay in five-star luxury, you may be walling yourself off from the travel experience. And look, I, I've stayed at my share of five-star hotels around the world, but for, for this book, partly because I was on a budget, but for other reasons too, I made a point of staying with friends if I knew people in the country or in the case of, say, Moldova, I rented an apartment from Moldovans who needed cash, which is pretty much every Moldovan. And it was a great idea because I really got to spend time with a woman there named Luba and got to know her. So you could argue that having to travel on the cheap gives you a more authentic and therefore happier travel experience. How's that for just... Well, it's, it's <laughs> funny. My ex-wife's named Luba. That means love in Russian. Uh, ah. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but I did um, not know that. Yeah, Lubov is love. But hmm. the more you travel, the lighter you like to travel. And I became a fanatic about traveling lighter and lighter and only using carry-on. And I found, you know, that's a, less of a buffer that you have between yourself. Me personally, I've stayed in very inexpensive places, and I had the best times. 
So I know right. for myself it was, didn't take a lot of money to travel. I think you're right, Dana. That I mean, that's fundamental to traveling through the back door. The way I put it is just the less you spend. In so many cases, the more you experience. And it's sort of an irony that a lot of people miss. But you stay in a five-star hotel and you're surrounding yourself with people that might be complaining about the air con. Whereas if you stay in a guest house, you're surrounded by a lot of people that, that want to share yeah. with you culturally. Uh, Dana, we got some more calls, so thanks for your call. Thank you. Matt in Chicago, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I appreciate the program. Yeah, what you got any uh, ideas or thoughts for Eric? Yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking about it. I think it's a fascinating topic. And for me, really the combination of both the people and the feel of a city are what kind of create a happy place. See, I lived in Sevilla, Spain for a while, and, you know, they have the paseo culture, and they spend a lot of time outdoors. Uh, you know, there's the aesthetic beauty of the city with their cathedrals and gardens, or, or even we were just in Ghent over the holiday, and those people are so educated. They have a great student population, and it could be a, a combination of the beer and the food over there, but the long lunches and the beautiful outdoor areas really contribute to a, a happier feel. Good observations. It, it is amazing, isn't it, how you know each city around the world has a different character, a different personality, a different feel. And I think there's something to be said for scale. I think uh, the happiest cities in the most livable cities around the world fall into what I call the sweet spot of population, somewhere between, say, 70,000 and about 150,000 people. Um, Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, falls into that sweet spot. Florence, during the time of the Renaissance, it's much bigger now, but at the time of the Renaissance, had a population of about 90,000 people, and they, they did some pretty good work back then with, you know, mm. Da Vinci and all that. In this country, in the U.S., uh, there are places like Asheville, North Carolina, which I write about in my book, population 70,000. And people are drawn to places like Asheville. They think they'll be happy there because they reap a lot of the benefits of urban life, such as a cultural scene, good ethnic restaurants and things like that, but without the drawbacks, without the traffic and the congestion and the higher crime rates and everything that comes with a, a New York or a Chicago. I love that concept, the sweet spot. Now that I think about it, Eric, it does yeah. make a lot of sense. 70,000 to 150,000. That's it. Yes. Related to that, I'm always fascinated by population density versus sparsity and what that has to do with the people's sort of happiness or even standard of living. Any thoughts on that from your research? I couldn't find anything definitive. It's the old, you know, country versus city debate. Um, mm -hmm. In this case, it does tend to vary with the type of country. Let me just explain this for a moment. Is uh, In developing countries, people say they're happier in cities. In a place like India, you'll get higher percentage of people saying they're happier if they're in Mumbai than if they're in some village in Rajasthan. But in the U.S., it's, it's unclear um, whether people are happier in the city or in the countryside. Um, there is not clear data. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, personally, I would like to be in that small city of 70 to 150,000 but the age-old debate, you know, is it country folk or city folk or are happier, that remains unanswered, I think. And maybe related to that is stress. There's a lot of stress in our world, and other countries are more laid back. I think you made a comment about the inconsistency between the uptight Swiss and the laid-back ties. Both were happy, but on different terms. Right. I mean, a word about stress is one finding is that busier people are happier than people who aren't busy enough. So again, a bit counterintuitive. But in fact, being busier not necessarily stressful, mm -hmm. or not necessarily stressed, but, but busy tends to make you happier. But you raise the point about, you know, the, the sort of uptight Swiss and the laid-back ties both being happy. And sort of at the end of my journey, I sat down, and I realized I had a big heap of contradictions. You know, the, the Icelanders drink like fish, but they're happy. The Moldovans drink like fish, and they're miserable. And all these contradictions. And I called up a man named John Helliwell, a Canadian researcher in, uh, I think he's in Vancouver, who's been looking at happiness for a long time. And I said, John, look, I've got a big pile of contradictions here. How, What's going on here? And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, well, it's simple, Eric. There are many paths to happiness. And I was like, ah, hmm. so it, it's not one or the other. Um, if you're Swiss, you might find your happiness in the trains running on time. If you're Thai, you might find your happiness in this attitude of my pen lie, never mind, just let it go. Um, there are many different paths. There's no one size fits all. There's no one formula. There are some universal things that will make you unhappy. Uh, war will pretty much do it. Envy is a great enemy of happiness. It's very toxic, and an envious society is not going to be a happy one, and a few other things like that. But beyond those few universal truths, I do believe that John was right, and there are many different paths to happiness, which I think makes for 
a more interesting world to so, explore. So, Eric, what forces yeah. would make envy a bigger deal in one culture compared to another? Because I, I agree that would be a fundamental poison for happiness. Um, Moldova, the least happy country in the world, which I visited, very envious place. I mean, Moldovans would rather see their neighbors fail than themselves succeed. Switzerland, on the opposite end of the envy spectrum, is not an envious place at all. In fact, they go to great lengths to conceal their wealth, or at least not to flaunt it. I mean, in this country, America, our attitude is, is if you've got it, flaunt it. For the Swiss, it's if you've got it, hide it. So you have very wealthy Swiss people who will not flash their wealth. Now, they might have a $10,000 espresso machine in their apartment, but you wouldn't know it. The idea is you do not want to provoke envy in others. And I found that fascinating. But envy is You don't want to provoke envy, but you don't want to be envious either, right? Right. Um, But you don't want to rub people's noses or faces in your wealth. In your wealth. And I think that's a different attitude from this country where we celebrate success and it's considered okay to flaunt your success. In Switzerland, it's not. If envy is the poison, the, the opposite of envy would be contentment, wouldn't it? So if you're a poor country that promotes contentment, maybe you're more likely to be happy. Maybe you're just living in a, in a grass hut in Sri Lanka without a lot of money, but you're content. Mm-hmm. And you're also, if you're in a grass hut in Sri Lanka, you're not going to be comparing yourself to Donald Trump or even to the average American. Uh, you might be comparing yourself to people in the nicer grass hut down the road. And that's one fact of human nature is that we compare ourselves to our neighbors. Take Moldova again. For an example, Moldova is a poor country, but poor in relationship to its neighbors in Europe. It's not poor compared to African nations. Right. We haven't even brought in the half of humanity trying to live on $2 a day. Right. And statistically, those countries are not the happiest places in the world. No. So I don't want to glamorize the yeah. noble, poor, So you've got to get out of that. You've got to get out of the half of humanity living on $2 a day and then get into yes. the, there's the simple contentment of Bhutan or India or, or Sri Lanka. Well, once you get out of that, that lower half of, you know, to bring up Maslow, since you're so fond of him, uh, once you get those first needs met, then, um, that's, to me, that's where it gets interesting. That's where the test happens. And that's where maybe the highly commercial environment of America telling us we're not satisfied and we need to buy this and buy that might contribute to our inability to be as happy as you'd expect we would be with all of our wealth. Yeah, we're, we're not as happy as we are wealthy. And I think it's what makes us such a difficult task is uh, sort of achieving happiness on a national scale is because... More money, at some point it does work. When you're a poor country, earning more money makes you happier. But then at some point it doesn't work. But we're still running. You know, we're still acting as if it does. And it's understandable. It worked before, but it's not working anymore. It's like the third cheeseburger. The first one was good. Second one was pretty good. Third one was not quite so good. And yet you keep eating cheeseburgers and you're feeling kind of nauseous, but you don't know how to change your behavior. What a great theme to inject into your travels. Uh, We got Carol on the line in uh, Clements, California. Hi, Carol. Eric. Thanks for your call. What is your thought for Eric? Well, I just wanted to put in a plug for Travel to Fiji, which in my experience is the friendliest place on earth, and the whole feeling of being there is one of joy among the people, and it's real contagious, which makes it a great place for people to travel to. It's kind of ironic because they're the friendliest people on earth now, but until about, I think, the 1820s or so, they were notorious cannibals. But then the missionaries came and converted them to Christianity and their... Well, well who, who says cannibals aren't happy? Well, right. Depends on who's eating. It's about happiness. It's yeah. about friendliness. And I guess cannibals <laughs> can be friendly, too. But and, it yeah. has a whole <laughs> other meeting when they ask you for dinner. <laughs> Thanks for your call, Carol. All right, Eric, there's a nursing thought. What, what about the tropical? Oh. You know, we got all these tropical paradises. You didn't seem to be that hot on those. I know. I didn't go to any. Isn't that a darn yeah. shame? But I, I purposely avoided it, um, partly because it would just appear to be too much of a scam if I spent a year traveling to Fiji <laughs> and Tahiti, et cetera. But also, seriously, because it turns out these places are not the happiest in the world. We think they are, and we have this very set idea in our mind about what is paradise. It usually involves palm trees and sandy beaches and drinks with those little umbrellas in them, right? That's paradise. And that's what the travel industry sells us as paradise. So we're sitting in cold Michigan or wherever, and we see these images and we think, yes, I could be happy there. 
But, you know, you're only thinking that because you're in cold Michigan. If you move to Tahiti or Fiji or places like that, you may not be happier. And, in fact, climate does not determine a nation's happiness. And, if anything, the happiest nations in the world are temperate and actually cold places like Iceland and Denmark. And I suppose there's two different things. I mean, you could go as a wealthy traveler to Jamaica and have a great time, but that doesn't mean Jamaica's a happy place. There might be a reality there that the tourists are oblivious to. Right. That's a good point. We didn't really get into that. But as a, as a tourist, you're experiencing the place very differently than as a local person. I tried as much as possible in this book when I traveled to these places to you know get under the skin and to be Icelandic or Moldovan or Bhutanese as much as it's possible. And I'm not saying it's entirely right. possible, but as much as it was possible. Eric, um, fascinating quote from Thomas Jefferson. I'd love to get your take on it. Jefferson wrote, travel makes a person wiser but less happy. You've done a lot of traveling. I know you don't call your book a self-help book for being happier, but has your exploration and and your study and the conclusions you've drawn, has travel made you wiser but less happy or wiser and happier? I would say wiser and a little bit happier. I wonder what Jefferson was speaking about there. Of course, in his day, travel was much more arduous than it is today. And I suppose in the he was getting away from the, the bliss of ignorance, I think, maybe. Yeah, and the tradition of the foreign correspondent, that's not happy travel. Right. But uh, this was a very particular kind of travel I did to look seeking out happiness. And it, it did make me, hmm, about wiser, a little less unhappy. Let's put it that way. I, I have incorporated into my life some of the lessons I picked up overseas, some of the lessons I picked up by doing all the reading and research I did. And and I try, I don't always succeed, but I tried on a bad day to be a little more Thai or a little more Bhutanese or yeah. uh, a little more Icelandic and get really, really drunk on Friday night. And I, I think there's more joy in the world than a lot of us realize. And that gets missed in the news coverage. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most remarkable findings from the world database of happiness is that most of the world is happy, more happy than sad, above a five on that spectrum of zero to 10. And you wouldn't really know that reading the newspaper every day, would you? You sure wouldn't. Eric, in your book, you wrote, uh, or somebody wrote, this book can change your life. I guess that was a reviewer. Can it change your life if you read this book? You said you lost your iPod and you didn't get like really mad because you realized you put things in perspective or something like that. Right. Or I, I evoked the Thai expression, my pen lie, never mind, just let it go. Uh, after cursing uh, uncontrollably for a few minutes, but still it kicked in and I thought that was a good sign. Gee, can the book change your life? That's a tall order. (laughs) I think you'll have fun, and I think you'll learn a thing or two, and I think you'll have a few good laughs. And if that's changing your life, then absolutely. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Eric Weiner, who's written The Geography of Bliss, One Grump Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Eric, thanks so much for a very thoughtful hour, and I think we've inspired a lot of people to get out there and explore what happiness is all about. Good. I'm, I'm happy we could do this. Best wishes. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Howard Gelman at KQED San Francisco for engineering help today. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.